Welcome to Through the Bible with Dr. Buddy Walls. Today's Bible lesson, we're going to be talking about pagan beginnings. Pagan beginnings. If you would, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 23. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But every man is in his own order or company. That means that Christ and the first fruits were the first little group of resurrected people. And then following is the main harvest, which I feel is the body of Christ, those who have been saved during this age of grace. And then after the tribulation had run its course, and we go into the earthly kingdom for an extra 75 days, then the Old Testament saints, which includes Daniel and all the rest, plus the tribulation saints, will be resurrected in their company. So, to start, let's go back to Psalms chapter 2 for a moment. Psalms chapter 2, and this chapter is the outline of the Old Testament prophetic program. And remember, all true prophecy is directed only to the nation of Israel. And usually, may not always that prophecy will be within a time frame. In other words, the first real prophecy given in the Old Testament was then God told Abraham that the children of Israel would end up in a land that was, was not theirs, and they would be in slavery. Look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. And he... That's another word, God, said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them for four hundred years. God was speaking of Egypt and how afterwards they would come back to the land of Canaan. Genesis chapter 15 verse 16. Genesis fifteen sixteen. But in the fourth generation thou say they shall come hither again. Now that was a, a distinctive prophecy of what would happen years down the road, but he put it in a time frame of four hundred and thirty years. And then you get to Daniel chapter nine, and Daniel writes that four hundred and ninety years are determined upon your people Israel. Look in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 24. Daniel 9, 24. The Bible says, Seventy weeks, that's 490 years, are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. And then you have the prophecy leading up to the crucifixion. Look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. Daniel 9, 26. And after three score and two weeks, that would be 483 years, shall Messiah cut off. That was at the cross. Now we're able to see seven years are left of that 490 years determined for the nation of Israel. And that's where we get the idea that there will still be seven years of tribulation to fulfill the full 490 years. 
Now, there is nothing in the Old Testament prophecy or otherwise that connects Israel to the church, which is his body. There is not a word in the Old Testament of some 1900 years, 1900 plus years, where God is calling out predominantly Gentiles. And if people could get that through their head, they would have half the battle won understanding the Bible. Now in Psalm chapter 2, we get we see a brief outline of this Old Testament prophetic program given to the Jew. Look, if you would, in the book of Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Psalm 2, 1 through 6. Why do the heathen, in other words, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, why do the heathen rage and the people, the Jews, imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers of Israel take counsel together. Remember, Peter only blames the Jews in Acts chapter 2. Yet we can't blame Israel for the crucifixion because the Romans carried it out. Israel demanded it, so they were in it together, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands, that is, God's desire to rule. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. In other words, they rejected his offer to being the king. And that was the whole scope of his earthly ministry. He had come in fulfillment of all these prophecies that Israel would have the divine Son of God as their King, Messiah, and Redeemer. But what happened? They rejected him and crucified him. He that sitteth in the heavens, in other words, the triune God, who is still watching over all uh, of, of this, shall laugh at the foolishness and to stupidity of mankind. The Lord shall have them, these nations, in derision. Then, in other words, after having rejected the Messiah, shall he, God, speak unto them, that is, the nations of the world, as well as Israel, in his wrath. Now, here's a prophecy concerning the final seven years of tribulation and vexed them in his sore displeasure. And then what's the next event? Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And where's that? Jerusalem. And it's from Zion that Christ is going to rule in his thousand-year reign. Now, there is your timeline in a nutshell for Old Testament prophecy. We have Adam back here at 4000 B.C. and we go forward in time. We find the human race has run along for about 1600 years. And then we come to the next big event in God's timetable and that's Noah's flood. And from the reverse side, of course, that will be about 2400 years before Christ. The three sons of Noah come out of the ark and under a whole new creation of sort that came about as a result of the flood. They stayed in. They stayed there in the Middle East for the next 200 years. Then, in total rebellion of what God has said to scatter and to repopulate the planet, they gather at the Tower of Babel under a man called Nimrod. Now, there at Babel, they were under total rebellion against God's authority. And remember, the tower was never intended to take brick and stone all the way to heaven, but rather it was a place of re- religion 
whereby they could literally usurp the throne of God religiously. And we know that has always been Satan's goal. And so this was the whole idea of the Tower of Babel. They were going to replace the things that God had instructed with the things that Satan now is going to promote himself. And there at the Tower of Babel is where every pagan, mythological, cultic, false religion, even on the planet today, has its roots. You heard me teach it over and over again that every false religion has its roots at the Tower of Babel. <coughs> Excuse me. I was just reading in the Reader Digest Book of the Month about this cult in Japan where they put the poison gas in the subway some time ago. Where did the old boy who became guru of that cult go for his so-called enlightenment to the Himalayas? And so who did he find in the Himalayas? Some Buddhist guru who supposedly gave him the enlightenment, supposedly, supposedly, and he goes back to Japan and begins his cult. Well, already you can see that you go right through Buddhism and through these other Eastern religions, and where are their roots? The Tower of Babel. And so every cult that's on the planet tonight, and I don't care who they are or what they are, every pagan religion, every mythological religion that has ever existed have all run their roots right back to the Tower of Babel. Now, one of the big highlights in the Old Testament economy was the Tower of Babel and how God scattered them. You all know the account of Babel. It means confusion. Then another 200 years went by, and once again, God does something totally different. He pulls out of this mainstream of humanity, this man Abraham, and he brings about the nation of Israel. By an act of a sovereign God, this didn't happen accidentally. But God sovereignly pulls out of the mainstream of humanity that man Abraham, as he was first called, and he promises him the nation of Israel. Now this will answer the question that I get so often in one form or another. Some will write and say, oh, where did the nation of Israel begin? Others will write and say, when did the Gentiles begin? The Gentile line, as we understand Gentiles, is this mainstream of humanity coming from Adam, coming from the three sons of Noah, coming through the nation scattered at the Tower of Babel, and they just keep going. This is the Gentile stream of humanity. And out of the mainstream of humanity, God pulled the little nation of Israel a virtue of separating the man Abraham. Now, Abraham was not a Jew. He was born of Syrian parents. His brothers were Syrians. And when Abraham's servant went up to Haran to get a wife for Isaac from his uncle, what was Rebekah? She was a Syrian. And later on, Jacob goes up and he gets a wife from his uncle Laban. And what was Laban? He was still a Syrian. But by virtue of God's decree and God's work of sovereignty, he declares that this man Abraham is the father of the Jewish race. And so if you've wondered, ever wondered, where does the Jew begin? He began when God separated Abraham out of his family in Ur of the Chaldeans and by way of his wife, which he took from Ur, a half-sister. He has the first son, Isaac. 
I always tell people, if you want to be real technical, the first real Jew then would be Isaac. But nevertheless, God refers to Abraham as the father of the Jewish people, even though he came from one of the other nationalities. And so now we have the nation of Israel who has made her appearance and from Genesis 12, and this is what's so amazing. All of the first 11 chapters of Genesis cover the first 2,000 years of human history. And then in chapter 12 of Genesis, we have the giving of the Abrahamic covenant. And there is nothing more important in all the Old Testament than the covenant that God made with Abraham. Abraham. And he's called and he's called early on at 2000 B.C. to bring about the nation of Israel. Now, Israel, <coughs> excuse me, Israel, according to the promises of God, was to be a nation that God would prepare and use. Now come back with me, if you will, to Genesis, and we'll just take a brief look at what I've already rehearsed in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Genesis 12:1. Now the Lord Jehovah had said, back in chapter 11, and to Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, and to a land that I will show thee. Now I've got to stop there and go over to Joshua a minute. Let's go over to chapter 24, and I want you to see where Abraham really came from. Joshua chapter 24, verse 1 and 2. Joshua 24, verse 1 and 2. The Bible says, And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and called for the elders of Israel, and for their heads, and for their judges, and for their officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah the father of Abraham and the father of Nacor. And they, in other words, all of them, Abraham, Terah, and Nacor, served what? Other gods, small g. Other gods with a small g. And so, what were they? Idolaters. Abraham was raised in idolatry. Now, when God spoke to him, and Stephen in Acts chapter 7 gives us the impression that God visibly appeared unto Abraham, that Abraham saw God in physical form, and God, or the Lord as we refer to him now, told Abraham what you see back in Genesis chapter 12. He told him to get away from his country, his kinfolk, and from his father's house. Why? Separate yourself from these false religions. You cannot serve me and you're under the roof with idolaters. Let's look at verse 2, and here comes the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. The Bible says, And I will make of thee a great nation. You won't remember back in the antiquities when Israel comes out of Egypt, I've always thought that it was a number of people anywhere between 3 and 7 million. There wasn't another tribe or nation anywhere in the Middle East that would come close to that. They just did not get that large a number. And so in the number of antiquities, Israel was the largest nation in that area of the world. And this was God's promise. Look at Genesis chapter 12, uh, 2 and 3. 
He says, And I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now turn the page a little bit, if you will, and look at verse 14 of chapter 13. Now we see the next part of the Abrahamic covenant. Not only would they be a nation of people, but now God's going to have to put them in a geographical area of land. They can't just continue on in slavery in Egypt. If they're going to be a nation of people that God is going to work through, they have to be in their own borders. Look at Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. And the Lord said unto Abraham, after that lot was separated from him, Lift up thine eyes, lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward. You want to remember, if you've never been to Israel before, but right up through the spine of that little narrow neck of land between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River are mountains. And so here Abraham is high on high ground, and God says, Abraham, you look as far south, north, east, and west as you can see. And now, verse 15. Look at Genesis chapter 13, verse 15. The Bible says, For all the land which thou seest to thee will I give, and to thy seed forever. Now listen, guys, that's the way it is today. All of that land that the Palestinians is claiming is theirs is not theirs. It actually belongs to Israel. Now let's come all the way back to Genesis 46. Now, time has gone by, but it's still within that, that time frame of the prophecy that was 430 years. And within that time frame, Israel had become a nation. They're in slavery in Egypt. Joseph has come to the top of the government. And Jacob is over there in the Negev desert and is about to starve to death. So now let's look at verse 1 of chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46, 1 and 2. And Israel, in other words Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. That's just south of Jerusalem, about 70 or 80 miles. And offered sacrifices unto the God of his father Isaac. And God spake unto Israel, or Jacob, in the visions of the night, and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, Here am I. Now just look at this command, almost a total opposite of what he's been told up until now. He was told not to leave the land of promise, and God would bless him. Now, But now look what God says in Genesis chapter 46, verse 3. Genesis 46, verse 3. And he said, I am God, the Father, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. Did he? Yes. And so Jacob ends up in Egypt with all his sons, and they come out 215 years later with about 5 million souls. Now let's let's look at Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Time has gone by, another 215 years, and now Moses has led the children of Israel out of Egypt. The 430 years are now completed, and we see the nation 
gathered around Mount Sinai and God is getting ready to do something totally different than he's ever done before. And I'll bet most people don't even think about it. Do you know that from Genesis chapter 1 until Exodus chapter 20, there were never any written do's and do nots from God so far as what men could and could not do? Do you know there has not been a single item of God instituted worship until we get here? I know they're prob- they probably brought sacrifices, but so far as having an organized system of worship, there has been none. And so here we have something that's never happened before that God tells the nation of Israel that he's going to give them the law and the priesthood, the whole system of sacrificial worship. And for what purpose? To make them aware of God's holiness, of his sovereign, of his sovereignty, that he is preparing them for a future role in the midst of all the pagan idolatry that was now all the way around them. Now, you want to remember the whole world was steeped in idolatry except for the offspring of Abraham. Is it any different in the year 2022? We are also steeped in idolatry. There is many forms of idolatry. Money, material, goods, entertainment, and even our time can be a form of idolatry. We want to comfortably stay in our comfort zone and not give God the time he deserves. And we will go out of the way to justify everything we do, even our time. So I want to ask you, in closing, and I always do this at each lesson, I want to ask you a question. Are you 100% sure that you're going to heaven? If you're 99% sure, it's not going to work. You're not going to get there. Did you know that God wants you to be sure that you're going to heaven? He says that in Scripture. So you have to absolutely know where you're going. Um, You just admit to God, pray to God, say, God, I know I'm a sinner, and I know that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe in the resurrection. I believe that you died and rose again that third day. And dear Lord, I, I repent of my sins. In other words, give your sins up. There's no need, you know, there's no need in repenting of your sin unless you plan on forsaking your sin. You got to give up your sin and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. Will you forgive me of my sin? And come into my heart and and save my soul. Save me. And you know what God said? In the book of Titus, he said, he does not lie, and he will save you. Ask, and you shall receive. If you ask for that, he'll give it to you. Then you're born again. It's what the Bible calls being born again or being saved. That's as simple as salvation is. Nothing complicated about it. Believing in the Lord. Believe what he says. Believe his word. Study his word. And that will be the authorized King James Bible. I hope you enjoyed this lesson. Until next time, Dr. Buddy Wall signing off.